Welcome to Tech Intersect. I'm your host, Tanya Evans, and my life and work exist at the heart of law, business, and technology. Yeah, I've earned a few fancy titles and degrees over the years, but the bottom line is I'm a writer, speaker, teacher, and lifelong learner. And I'm really excited that you've joined me on this journey. So what is Tech Intersect? Well, it's authentic, empowering conversations with really interesting guests who demystify complex topics to prepare you for the future, because your future is now. And it exists where law, business, and tech intersect. Get ready to listen, learn, and leverage. Let's get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 112 on April 26th. 2022. The pandemic is still a thing. Cryptos and stocks are falling today. Bitcoin is trading below 40,000 and sentiment among crypto traders remains mixed as the market continues to move sideways. And the board of the social media platform Twitter has accepted Tesla CEO Elon Musk's 44 billion with a B, $44 billion offer to buy the social media platform. He says he wants to loosen up content rules in the name of free speech, even though it's a privately owned company and free speech promised by the Constitution really is in public speech. But what do I know? I'm just a lawyer. (laughs) He also wants to, now I like this one, he wants to create an edit button so users can change their tweets. So free speech, but change it at will. Got it wants to open up Twitter's algorithm to the public. Algorithms have been a big issue because they've worked really hard to push you towards content that you like, but drowning out competing views. Some say that's the blessing. Others say that's the curse. So he wants to do away with that, open up algos and APIs so that others can build in the Twitter ecosystem. Definitely, I love this part, launch a war on bot armies, and also scrap ads. Is anybody really clicking on those ads and actually buying something from Twitter? I have on occasion, back in the days when I actually loved IG, (laughs) clicked on some ads on IG. It never worked out particularly well, but I have never, and I mean ever, clicked on an ad on Twitter Perhaps that's why it's a great place to engage, I guess, in communications. Y'all know I love Twitter, so this is not bashing Twitter, but I don't go there to transact business and I darn sure don't engage in the ads. So who knows? Look, it's a tall order for someone with no experience in this area, other than being the new tweeter in chief after 45 was booted off of the platform. Maybe he'll come back. I hope not, but we shall see. Uh, But he certainly has more money than God. So money means that you make good decisions. I don't know. This is the problem that I have with investor protection rules that require you to be an accredited investor before investing your money in, in the equity space. But having money doesn't mean you have sense. Therefore, time will tell how this all works out. I don't really care, care, because I'm busy minding my Black-owned business, literally, and finishing up my 15th year teaching law, preparing for a one-year leave from the law school to focus on a recent five-year co-hire appointment, 
to the Penn State Institute for Computational and Data Sciences. I'll take a deep dive into my intersectional research. I'm writing, revising, and contributing to several books over this year, and also taking a deep dive in my professional speaking engagements. Things are filling up. If you have plans for May, June, July, August, good luck. (laughs) But definitely get in touch with my amazing speakers agents at Gravity Speakers. That's gravityspeakers.com. And let's see what we might work out for 2023. I could not be happier to have this moment, a slight reprieve from teaching to really focus on writing and speaking and catching my breath a bit. 15 years is a long haul because I practiced law full-time for 10 years before becoming a full-time academic. Yes, clearly I started when I was eight. I'm a genius. It's amazing. (laughs) But now I just have to survive grading papers and exams. So pray for me and send wine and Thai food, but like really, really good Thai food, not the terrible Thai food. Really authentic, beautiful, amazing Thai food. Send it to central Pennsylvania and wine. Thank you very much. All right. Before we hop into the app, a quick note on digital safety. There are a lot of bots and scammers out there on social media impersonating me and other crypto and financial educators and experts. I need your help. Now hear this. I will never, ever, 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 ever slide into your DMs to say peace and blessings or hey, period, for no good reason. I do wish you both peace and blessings, but I'm a little busy. I'm a professor, professional speaker, writer, licensed attorney since 1998. I'm not a trader for myself or anyone else, and I will never, ever, 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 ever reach out to you to solicit your time or money for crypto or for trend for X. I don't even know what it is for any investment like ever, just so I'm clear. So be careful out there in those social media streets, social media platforms like IG, Facebook, which I'm rarely on or check to Twitter and Clubhouse. I don't even know if we're still doing CB. Are we? I don't know. But they have all been compromised by scammers and bots in some form or fashion. It's actually really difficult to operate as your own person. It seems to be far easier to be a scammer or a bot than a real person. So be careful and discerning. Make good choices and never transmit personal, confidential, financial information on social media like ever. In fact, This has become such a pressing concern. We talk about it all the time in my club at Advantage Evans, the AE Explore Live Club. So I've decided to develop a free, free, free webinar, and I'm going to launch it. It's the first one that I've done specifically on the issue of securing your crypto bag safely in order to avoid scams and to protect your investment. And did I mention it's free 99? So please go to AdvantageEvans.com to sign up for the newsletter and to register for the webinar, not your DMs, but my website, period. Uh, And you can register again at AdvantageEvans.com. There's also a link in the show notes if you just want to drop down to the show notes in order to register. Okay, now that we're clear. Please take a moment to follow this podcast and then like, share, and comment so that others who would benefit from the content can find it. 
Okay, time to listen, learn, and leverage. Let's get started with today's topic, which is unpacking the recently released 2022 Ariel Schwab Black Investor Survey. I hosted a Twitter space about this topic. I think that it's still up. I think you have access to it for 30 days. So definitely go to IP Prof Evans on Twitter or click through in the show notes and check out my Twitter feed. If you want to hear the Twitter space conversation with me and Clev Mesador and a few other thought leaders in the space about this topic, but I wanted to do a deeper dive on the podcast. I'm also continuing a conversation about Black investors in the crypto and DeFi spaces at a virtual event hosted by the Office of the Comptroller of Currency with the acting Comptroller Michael Sue. For more information and to participate, visit occ.treasury.gov, G-O-V, or occ.treasury.gov for more information and to participate. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today. Now, the objective of this annual Black Investor Survey that's happened for over two decades is conducted by Ariel Investments, founded by Melody Hobson and Schwab, the bank, the investment uh, company and bank. And it seeks to identify similarities and differences between middle class Black and white Americans, focusing specifically on savings and investing, especially in stocks. And they do this every year in order to examine the factors, particularly past influences and underlying beliefs that may impact how Black and white Americans think about financial matters, and also to assess the expectations and sentiment that Black and white Americans face in their financial future, and finally to determine any shifts in attitudes over time or behaviors that have occurred. And so this is the first time they actually took a close look at crypto. So they go through, in terms of their specific methodology, which I always think is important in order to get a clear picture and view of the approach that researchers and data analysts are taking with respect to the topic here. The methodology was an online survey of approximately 18 minutes in length, It was conducted during the period of January 4th through January 13th of 2022 with a sample provided by opt-in consumer panels. And there was a random sample, mixed genders, had to be 18 years of age or older with a household income of at least $50,000 in 2021. And the interviewee had to be the primary or shared decision maker for household financial decisions. A total of 2,057 surveys were completed, 1,035 among those identifying as Black, and 1,002 
two among those identifying as white. So some initial findings from the survey include an analysis, again, of cryptos or cryptocurrencies or crypto assets described and identified as risky investments. And noting that risky investments are growing in popularity, especially among younger Black investors. Okay, so crypto is definitely volatile. It is a nascent asset class to be sure. And it's interesting, these statistics, and I encourage you, there's a link in the show notes to the survey. I want you to take a a closer look. I'm only hitting the high notes of it, but I I want you to see for yourself and D-Y-O-R, do your own research. But 25% of Black Americans currently own cryptocurrency. That's an amazing statistic. I'm very excited about that statistic, but clearly I am biased. One quarter of Black Americans currently own cryptocurrency, and among Black investors under 40, that jumps to 38%. Only 15% of white Americans own cryptocurrency, although this rises to 29% of white investors under 40. So it's definitely a generational divide with respect to crypto adoption and ownership. Twice as many Black Americans ranked cryptocurrency as the best investment choice overall, 8% of Black Americans versus 4% of white Americans. And among Black investors, 23% cited excitement about cryptocurrency as the reason they even started investing in general. And 11% indicated cryptocurrency was their first investment compared to 10% and 4% respectively for white investors. I'm really excited about that statistic as well. I'll talk more about that in a moment. And finally, Black investors are less likely than their white counterparts to see cryptocurrency as risky, 68% to 73%, and more likely to believe it is safe, 33% to 18%. That is a pretty wide gap, to be sure. The survey also goes on to explore or at least identify the fact that Black and white Americans are jumping into the crypto space with, quote unquote, without all the facts. I don't know that any of us have all of the facts. This is a continual process of crypto education. I spend all day, every day and twice on Sunday actually focused on crypto education and I'm learning something new every day. But the statistics show that 29% of Black Americans reported that they'd invested in something they didn't fully understand and did so because it seemed like their, quotes, a sure deal, end quote. One third of Black investors said they invested in something based on something they saw on social media. Although from what I read, I can't fully appreciate or identify what specific social media platforms Are they talking about the internet or literally Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, for example? So I'd like more information about that. And finally, Black investors are more than twice as likely to trust social media as an information source on investing and finances. Now, on the upside, Black Americans are saving and investing significantly more than they did in 2020, with the highest contributions coming from new investors, high earners, and young respondents. And Black Americans are just as likely as white Americans to discuss investing with their families, which is essential to prepare future generations for wealth accumulation, particularly with capital assets. But trust 
in legacy financial institutions is still persistently and chronically very low. The surveyors conclude that there is a clear need for financial institutions to build trust and to address the educational gap between black and white investors. I believe it is this data point that is the very reason that crypto assets and decentralized finance are so attractive to black investors, especially digital natives. The idea of a trusted intermediary, um, a bank, for example, is no longer needed in the crypto space in order to have a secure way to exchange value and leverage crypto assets in order to earn interest, for example, in the DeFi space or extract value like equity out of a home, all without the gatekeepers in a system that is plagued with systemic ills like racism and sexism that has not proved itself to be trustworthy with respect to the Black community. This distrust is well-earned and reaches back to the first bank, even before, certainly, but I'm focused on the first bank created specifically for Black people in America after emancipation, the Freedmen's Bank. And so I wanted to give you a little context and history about this since information comes from the Treasury Department's website, but there are many, many resources out there to learn more about the Freedmen's Bank, its origins, its rise and precipitous fall as well. But essentially with the passage of the 13th Amendment and the end of the Civil War in 1865, slavery was finally abolished in the United States. The practice, of course, had existed on the American continent for more than 200 years, but almost overnight, nearly 4 million African-American men, women, and children were in fact free. Stick a pin in that or go back to a previous episode where I talk about the importance of Juneteenth. If you don't know the connection between emancipation and Juneteenth, pause this episode, go back to the Juneteenth episode, and then come back here. Um, but for those who are familiar, let's press on. With the South in ruins, they faced disorder and certainly danger. Most enslaved and then freed Blacks in America had no home, had no money, had no work. And their relatives, because of slavery, the pernicious, pernicious institution of slavery, their relatives were sold all over the country, scattered. It's nearly impossible to find folks. So in order to address the needs of the newly freed enslaved people, the United States government created the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and abandoned lands, commonly known as the Freedmen's Bureau. And it provided food and housing, medical aid to tens of thousands of freed, enslaved, formerly enslaved people. It attempted at least to locate and relocate relatives and to reunite families. And the goal was to help to establish schools all across the South for Blacks in America. Meanwhile, a group of missionaries and abolitionists and businessmen saw that African-Americans would need support and education to become financially secure. So the group worked to create a savings bank for the formerly enslaved peoples and their families. In 1865, the bank was created, the Freedmen's Savings and Trust Company, often called the Freedmen's Bank opened its doors for business. That's 1865. And the Freedmen's Savings and Trust Company was a private corporation 
It was chartered by an act of the United States government signed by President Abraham Lincoln, and it was created to help develop the newly freed, formerly enslaved people as they endeavored to become financially stable in a new environment. Originally, the bank was headquartered in New York, later moved to Washington, D.C., and eventually there were 37 locations across 17 states. Sounds too good to be true, and it is. It had a very unceremonious demise. In 1867, the Freedmen's Bank moved its headquarters, as I mentioned, from New York City to Washington, D.C. A group of local bankers and politicians took hold. Its businessmen began to take control. It is that control that became a very problematic gatekeeper between access to the funds and the funds themselves. The trustees began to invest in real estate projects and railroads. They made risky loans to friends, some with no collateral. Sounds really familiar. It's an age-old tale. We're talking in the mid to late 1800s. Sounds a lot like what happened in 2008, 2009 with the banking crisis. Same fill-in-the-blank, different century Some of the trustees were in charge of other banks as well. And when they made bad loans at those banks that serviced white people, they transferred the bad loans on that ledger to the Freedmen's Bank. So as Frederick Douglass, famous writer and speaker, widely respected in the African-American community, of course, would later describe it, the bank had become, quote, the black man's cow, but the white man's milk. And when a financial panic hit the country in 1873, most of the Freedmen's Bank's investments lost value or became worthless. Clearly, the bank was doomed. Several branches were hit by bank runs. When some Everybody goes at the same time to get their money out. If it's not fully backed and fully leveraged, everybody can't get their money out, right? Savings and loans requires that you save so that the bank can loan and earn money on your money right? Making money on other people's money. And by other people, I mean us. So we have a run on the bank. Crowds of depositors demanded their money. Branches met some demands, but the cash reserves for the Freedmen's Bank were absolutely drained. A number of trustees resigned. And In the meantime, nobody had been watching the trustees and what they were doing. There was a lack of transparency and accountability. The Congress was supposed to supervise the Freedmen's Bank, but paid little attention. Again, sounds very familiar. And when Congress finally sent the comptroller of the currency to look carefully at the bank's books, it was too late. And in an attempt to save the bank, the trustees asked Frederick Douglass to replace bank president John Alvord. Also a very familiar playbook. When things are going downhill, appoint a Black person as a figurehead. And by the time you step in, it's already a dumpster fire, a flaming hot mess. He accepted the position, not knowing how bad the situation was. But of course, he soon realized he was, in his words, married to a corpse. Six weeks after taking the job, he told Congress to shut the bank down. The trustees fought the closing at first, but then soon realized that the bank could not be saved. And so in June of 1874, the Freedmen's Bank was closed. 
Now, turning back to the Ariel Schwab survey, it's unsurprising that when it comes to growing and protecting one's money or assets, that 31% of Black Americans compared to 21% of whites surveyed trusted technology. In fact, Black Americans trusted people least at 32% and institutions at 37% compared to whites who trusted people the most at 45%, followed by institutions at 34%. And who are the people? Presumably trusted advisors. And here's where representation matters and why I think the survey misses the mark in its analysis of the data. The failures, as reported by the survey, seem to fall decidedly on the shoulders of investors or would-be investors, and not on the system made up of people who have not prioritized increasing and sustaining and protecting Black investment. In January of this year, CNBC and other news outlets reported the favorable increase of Black and Brown financial planners and of women. But the numbers show a clear and stark reflection of the people available to Black investors who seek to build trust through shared experience. There were 76,435 white financial planners in 2021, about 83% of the total, dwarfing the other racial and ethnic groups. About 4% or just over 3,600 of CFPs are Asian or Pacific Islanders. Almost 3%, about 2,500 are Hispanic or Latino. And over 1,600, nearly 2%, which means under 2%, are Black or African American. And that is the improvement that was being reported on. Now, by comparison, the U.S. population is about 76% white. 19% Hispanic or Latino, 13% Black or African American, and 6% Asian, according to Census Bureau data. Folks, we'll continue to have this conversation and really critique and engage with the data of the legacy financial system, its systemic failures, the void that has been created that is allowing the possibility of closing the wealth gap between Black Americans and white Americans based on this novel nascent asset class that removes the barriers to participation, removes the barrier to information, access, and this idea of transparency and self-determination and community and cooperative economics is all a part of the crypto community experience. It's not without flaws, but it does present an opportunity. I argue that we should approach this topic as a matter of social and economic justice. It's extremely progressive. And we're in the midst of Financial Literacy Month. It's important to have an honest conversation about the why of the data points, not just the what. And the survey casts what I consider to be showing my own bias, a familiar but dark pall over the viability of cryptocurrencies in general, Bitcoin in particular, and other assets without an accurate and balanced view of the power and the promise of crypto and decentralized ways to exchange value and amass a capital asset, given the essential role of capital assets 
a capital asset investment historically in inspiring increased financial literacy and creating generational wealth. My experience at Advantage Evans and a number of outlets where I have educated at this point thousands of people, including a majority of Black people and women, access to disintermediated financial tools and products and investments that have created a new class of investment built on autonomy, agency, and as I mentioned, self-determination, cooperative economics, Kwanzaa principles in a transparent, accessible, emerging market. Volatile? Yes. Nascent? Yes. Here to stay? 100% yes. So it's time for legacy financial advisors and institutions to take a closer look especially those advising the Black community, responsible financial literacy now includes empowering the Black community to succeed in the future of money and wealth, because it's true, the future is now, and it can be on our own terms if we increase not only our financial literacy, but our crypto literacy to be empowered in the future of work, wealth, and creativity. Okay. Before we sign off, please take a moment to like, comment, and share this episode and this podcast with your networks. Follow me on social media and let me know what topics you'd like to hear more of and who you want to hear from. All right, that's all for this episode. Until next time, continue to shine. Stay in touch with host Tanya Evans via your favorite social media on Twitter at, at @techintersect and on Instagram via the handle Tech Intersect. This podcast has been produced by Stephanie Renee for Soul Sanctuary Incorporated.